I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. <laughs> that wasn't my normal cadence, and we love to watch. <laughs> <laughs> we love to watch uh, Halloween Spooktacular Goosebumps Edition. Um, everyone in my family makes fun of me for the way I say, I'm Aaron Armstrong at the beginning of this. And so this is the first time that I was like, that's not what I say. Did I lose? Did I lose it? Did I lose that weird <laughs> thing that sounds different from the rest you're, of the voice? You're now uh, in your own head too deep. That's going to be a problem. Clearly, I mean, that is the radio, like, KVR5, like, it's that yeah. that weird thing. And all of a sudden, I didn't, I didn't have it. It was a whole new voice. But yeah, where we love to watch. We're so glad that this episode is getting recorded and being released on time because we had said last week, which may get cut out, that we didn't know if that we were going to make this in time for Halloween with all the things going on. But we are. We were able to make it because it's a lot of content. And I didn't watch all of it. That Peter, see, Peter sent me a lot of lists. And I'm like, sure, that sounds great. I'll get to what I get to. <laughs> it's a lot of episodes. I wasn't it's a lot of stuff. to do it all. But here's here's why I feel I here's why I felt confident saying yeah sure whatever Peter in a very polite professional way um, is because I like what we're going to talk about for our Goosebumps spooktacular uh, which is the capper off to we love to watch a podcast that does themes in a month on our kid horror month is that like Goosebumps is. The first, I think, actual horror thing that I loved. Like, I was obsessed with this, and and I was scared by it, and I want to talk a lot about that. But, like, I think Goosebumps for kids of a certain age – I was nine when the first book came out. Um, It was an immediate phenomenon at my school, among all my friends, among everyone. I think that, like – I could talk about Goosebumps. We're going to try to do like a two-hour episode. I could talk about Goosebumps for six, seven, eight hours because it was so formative for me as a reader of fiction, as an understanding of like horror conventions, as someone who like probably their first exposure to the concept of like these twist endings that like seem like they're happy. Like I didn't watch the twilight zone. I, you know, I hadn't watched all the, I hadn't read all the Stephen King books. I hadn't like all these horror conventions were sort of, you know, sterilized in some ways. Um, and, and, you know, literally just shit out month over month eventually which we can talk a little bit about. But I, I'm not worried about talking about Goosebumps and um, unless we're talking about like all the spinoff series and like the last few books of the original series, I feel pretty confident I can bullshit my way through through Goosebumps. And I did I did read a new book is what I'll say. So let's just get Goosebumps Bonafides out of the way first. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Written by originally written by Earl Stein. Um, since then, there's been uh, particularly in the past ten years, some other authors uh, authors have jumped in. Particularly, there's like Goosebumps graphic novels now, yeah. and you know, sort of spinoff books. But the large chunk and the books that people actually remember well um, are the uh, original series, which ran from like ninety two to ninety seven. Yeah, um, which are like eighty eight books, eighty yeah. some books. Yep, yeah, yes. seventy eight. Yeah, and um, these books, all the, 
entire Goosebumps series, uh, including uh, everything written by R.L. Stein, has sold somewhere around 400 million copies worldwide, which yeah. you'll hear in the, in the first Goosebumps movie. 2015 movie, yeah. uh, Jack Black's iteration of R.L. Stein, which is very weird. We'll it's, talk about yeah, it. I, lo- I love it. I'm excited to this talk about very, it. It's I, a very weird choice. Um, in, a, in a good way. Um, I know yeah. why he did it. Uh, he says 400 million sold worldwide, and then the character kind of gives him like a look or whatever. And domestic? Says, like, <laughs> yeah, domestic. He domestic? Goes, worldwide. It's a lot. Like, yeah. it's internationally, but it's still a lot. It's more than that Stephen King who gets written about in all the magazines, but no one yeah. ever talks about it. And as of to that, I couldn't do apples to apples on those guys because, like, publishing yeah. um, publishing sales things are very hard to track. Yeah. Um, there was an estimate done in, two, <clears throat> in 2006 that uh, Stephen King sold 350 million copies. Yeah. It is... Deeply impressive that any children's author that is still living, note you, still living, um, could sell 400 million copies worldwide. And that's impressive for many reasons, right? One, your books cross language barriers, right? Yeah. Two, you're still alive. Like, I know why Roald Dahl has sold a zillion copies, but Roald Dahl's been dead. (laughs) Like, they keep adapting movies, and yeah, there's, and there wasn't a movie since 2015. It's kind of like, I, it's hard to tell why things become as big of a phenomenon as they are. And, like, I couldn't really find anything that pinpointed why this was so immediately huge for kids of my generation and then lasted for a long time for a lot of different reasons. But, yeah. Uh, and actually, so while the original series ran um, about 78 books of, like, the original Goosebump series, there kept being iterations. There was um, essentially 250 Goosebumps books in that first like 15 years before they fell off in popularity and they stopped for a while before they started doing reissues and graphic novels and bringing in other authors. R.L. Stein maintains that he wrote all of the books. Um, there's been a lot of like speculation around ghostwriting. The only thing that there is like there what he said that he sometimes, especially later on when he was doing a lot of different like series. He brought in people to help him do his outlines of, like, how can we just come up with a story and break a story? But that all of the writing was uh, himself, including for um, uh, uh, the Give Yourself Goosebumps, which is like the Choose Your Own Adventure books, which he he claims that he – that's the one where there is actual, like, some people have said, no, I was a ghostwriter on here. But everything else, that's like, you know, 40 books. That's 210 books that he – no one seems to be arguing that he wrote himself, even though people are like, how the fuck did you do this? And he gave a uh, Reddit Ask Me Anything. Uh, people call them AMAs, but those are my initials, so I always feel weird. I'm always like, who's who's right? Who's talking to me? Um, but uh, the um, – the uh, and they asked him. They're like, how many of these did you – he's like, he's like, yeah, I – he was contracted by Scholastic, who, who uh, published these books. To do a Fear Street book, which is a whole other series that he wrote during this time, mm-hmm. not even related to Goosebumps. And it was um, more targeting teens than teens than uh, like kids elementary. Yep, he was contracted <clears throat> by Scholastic at the basically as those those series went on to do a Fear Street book and a Goosebumps book per month, which is why there was speculation that there was like who can turn out these books 
once a month. I mean, they were like comic issues and usually comics don't come out every month. You know, some do, but you also have inkers. You have all these other people like maybe you do a dialogue light comic. But like he basically said his schedule was it took him eight days to write a Goosebumps book and it took him 10 days to write a Fear Street book. I've never read a Fear Street book, so I have no idea if that's true or not. Having reread a lot of Goosebumps book in the last three years and now even re- reading a new one near when not in the early days but one of the later ones of the original series for the first time I can believe that these are written <laughs> days. I mean and that's not a slight it's just he eventually settled into and you can even see this by the time you get to like 15 to tw- you know Goosebumps numbers 15 to 20 you can see that he settled into a formula mm-hmm. and he just – I mean, he cranked it out. There's – there's, yeah. I, I, Peter, the book that you said, hey, you should read this one. This will be a fun later one because you said you've never read any of these and this is one that I remember really well. I read it before this recording and it took me 35 minutes. I mean, <laughs> it's theoretically a 115-page book. There is maybe 150 to 250 words per page. Uh, big font. It did not like. Yeah, yeah. If I could read it in 30 to 40 minutes, I bet someone can write it in eight days. That's all I'm saying. When you are writing at that clip, yeah, the concept of kill your darlings doesn't even come up. Like, no, you're L. Ron Hubbard. First draft, last draft, <laughs> yeah. get out the door. Yeah, yeah. like. The concept. He said his uh, wife was his editor, who would like go. Oh, you spelled this word wrong, and this doesn't make any sense. And that was that was it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the idea that he was just churning these out, churning these out. But like the thing is, that actually does yield some real strangeness because, like, yeah. sure, his first couple books, like uh, Welcome to Dead House and stuff, they have a sort of um, hey, clearly he's riffing on you know like. Uh, yeah. Night of the Living Dead, he wants to make... Or The Mummy, or... Yeah. He wants to make Swamp a commentary thing, on, yeah. like, um, wants to make a commentary on, like, you know, Rust Belt Towns, um, yeah. you know, whatever. There's sort of a concept there. But by the time you get to, like, some of the books, like, <clears throat> I guess this is one of the earlier ones, but, like, I was reading synopsis of some of these books, and, like, Night of the Living Dummy, um, the entire plot... Is this is I don't know why this makes me laugh so hard. The entire plot is on the uh, is is based around the idea that one girl gets a dummy and is showing off her dummy skills, and then her sister is like, "I want a fucking dummy." Like, what universe yeah. do these kids live in? <laughs> that ventriloquist dummies are such a huge deal. Like, what universe does she do they live in? Where like kids are like that kid. Better not have a new I mean, slappy. <laughs> I mean, that kind of happens in Goosebumps too, as well, where that kid's like, "I'm going to take that dummy." That bully, that bully wants that dummy. Um, but least yeah, that was well, on a pile of trash, and he's like, "I found some weird trash." This is like, "Mom, you have to get me a better dummy than my stupid sister." Yes. Yeah, so let's like let's these stories talk. have insane basis bases like that that, well, that end up happening because he has to pump them out all the time. Yeah, and I. I think that eventually, like, what's interesting about reading – so I, in the last two years, reread the first, like, three or four books with uh, my my oldest daughter. And now she's at the age where she just reads them. I bought a, one of the one of the classic collection tins with the first, I think, 12 or 13 book or 15 books, whatever, in the series. Uh, those are the ones I remember the most, the ones that I read over and over as a kid as well. 
Um, and I, I do see even um, if you and I think I, I bought her a couple new, newer ones being like 1996 versus 1992. But like I bought her like Shocker at Shock Street, one that I had seen the cover for and like, oh, should I go back and read a Goosebumps book? Because there's a giant fucking praying mantis on her on the cover and that looks rad as shit. Um, but you do see like how much of the f- how much of an early like how do I keep kids invested in this book and a lot of tricks that we'll talk about became like a very hilarious formula. I don't know if you reread the blob book that I read tonight, Peter, but like the amount of like the dark figure approach chapter end. Hi, dad. Like it is like I just need something scary and it doesn't matter if it means anything like that. That becomes a lot more, like, especially to an adult, eye-rollingly formulaic as opposed to even if you go back and read some of the earlier books, they're not, like, they're not horror masterpieces. They're not, they're not, like, better. than They don't live up to what – if you haven't read them since you were 10, they don't live up to that because you are projecting all of your fears and a, and a story beats – there is still that similar, like, I'm going to scare people right before the chapter, and then the next chapter is going to resolve it very quickly. And then the last 20 pages, finally, people figure out what's going on and it ends on a crazy twist. But everything's a little more grounded in some basic, like, I need to care about this story a little more. And I will say, even though I actually kind of enjoyed the blob story that you, that you, uh, um, that I read, which was book number 55. <laughs> Um, I will say that, like, the the degree of how much he cares about making this a good book that needs to sell on its own merits yeah. has gone out the window. <laughs> like, yeah. he's like, this is what I do. I do this, and then I do this, and then I do this. And, oh, what's the craziest twist I could think of? Yeah. Um, like, and so, I yeah, also so- sent you that co- – I, I sent you that – uh, Wikipedia, Goosepedia, whatever the fuck they call it. I sent you that entry because I was like, I remember the end of the story being so good as a kid and it making oh, yeah. my friends really mad. And I was like, wait, hold on. The end of the story is the end of funny games. <laughs> kind goes, of. Hey, I actually oh, don't, yeah, I, I actually don't yeah. like how that story ended. It kind of bums me out. What if the bad guys win and then the bad guys have some sort of magical device that can rewind time? No, 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 no. Do you remember what it is? Because it's crazier than that. Because there's like a magical typewriter that actually so controls ma- how the story no. progresses. No. I, I mean, I read it two hours ago. <laughs> so let me tell you a little more. So... And then we'll get into our bona fides. So the book that I read, what what is it? What is the actual name of it? I'm trying to pull it up. The Blob Who Ate Everyone. The Blob Who Ate Everyone. So the story is that this there's a kid who's scared of everything who writes horror things on a magic typewriter. Um, he thinks it's a magic typewriter. He finds out by the end of the story that he got struck by lightning in the antique store with the typewriter. So when other people tried to type stuff, like so, a lot of the the middle part of the book is like. It, am I creating things with this typewriter, like a stormy night or a knock at the door? And then other people type stuff and they're like, oh, no, this is probably happening. And, oh, never mind. These were just coincidences. By the end of the book, he figures out that he, by getting the typewriter and the pen and all these other things have nothing to do with it. He got struck by lightning in this antique store with this weird dealer who uh, said, go ahead, keep the typewriter. In earlier RL, earlier Goosebumps books, I think that guy would have come back. And like said some stuff, but it's just like it's all kind of abandoned. You're he's, right. He's like I've end- already written that ending. I don't want to write the haunted ma- haunted mask ending. I want to write yes. something else. So at the end of it, yeah, 
There's he writes the blob into existence, not realizing he has the power. The blob destroys everything, and he realizes that it's not the type. The blob eats the typewriter, but he realizes it's not the typewriter. It's him, and uh, he writes in his head the blob and everything else out of existence and everything back to normal. The last chapter, you find out that this whole thing we've been reading is a book written by blob people a kid talking to their dad about uh this story they wrote about these humans and the dad the dad blob says i didn't like the ending where the humans live can you rewrite it so all the humans die and the kid's like yeah i'll do that and that's the end of the book so it's, it's even weirder than you remember it's not someone with magic power saying i don't like the ending go write it so that bad things happen it is the, the 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 story about humans fighting a blob has been written by blob people who want the humans to die at the end so rewrite the story i so, like, kid that being mind-blowing like the idea that like and like i i think as a kid i thought there must have been some clue that i missed that this was all inside the Blobs universe or whatever. I don't think there was, I think. <laughs> no, well, so I think, so that ending, though, is the the ending that has stayed with me for my entire, like, my entire life since I've read it. The, the earlier one, so let's talk about Bonafides, and I want to talk about a specific ending that I think is the first time he did that kind of, like, holy shit, this changes everything. So, yeah, the first Goosebumps book, Welcome Dead House, came out in July of 1992, I don't know. I definitely had all my friends were buying it from book orders. If you remember book orders, uh, like everyone had Welcome to Dead House and the second book, Stay Out of the Basement. I It's like pre-slappy, pre-Night of the Living Dummy. At the school I went to, everyone had copies and I ended up borrowing them from my friends, scaring the shit out of myself. My parents were very anti-horror like horror and very anti um, literature. So I somehow, I, this is a part I've been trying to remember. I somehow acquired a lot of the first 20 books myself. I'm not sure how. I know I had a paper route. So maybe did I save money? Did I go to a book fair? These books were like two, three dollars, you know, less. But I somehow, I definitely didn't get my parents to buy them for me. And I remember because the other kind of formative horror thing that used to scare the shit out of me was Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. And I had the Scary Stories books and I had Goosebumps books. And I kept them under my mattress like I was hiding pornography in like fourth grade. <laughs> it's a great habit and to have a parent, uh, as a child. Is I don't think I ever hid pornography under my mattress because by the time I by the time I got to that age, it, the internet existed, <laughs> um, and I, it was more about clearing caches and, and web histories than it was hiding under under my bed. Uh, if you're wondering, like, oh, did your parents, you were third or fourth grade, maybe they're just careful. No, because uh, they found my Magic the Gathering cards when I was 16 and threw them away for bringing evil into the house. And my parents were just kind of always crazy. Uh, but but, I, did, but I, I, I was so scared, Peter. So I read these all the time whenever my parents weren't around. So, like, these first, like, I didn't have every single one, but I had most of them uh, up until about – uh, 16, One Day at Horrorland. I had like those first 16 books. And I think then I eventually got like Monster Blood 2 and Deep Trouble. But there's some of these I've never read. Like I've never read Why I'm Afraid of Bees. I don't think I ever read Return <laughs> of the Mummy. But like I had a good chunk, 90% of the first 20 books. There was a point where I was so overcome with guilt, Peter, that I had all these books. And I'm like, what if my mom goes under the bed and finds my scary stories to tell in the dark book or my Goosebumps books? 
what am I going to do? And I like just literally they were they went ran an errand and I stayed home and I went took all of them and put them in the dumpster in the alley Aww. that wasn't even ours because I was like I was so worried about getting caught with these with these books and at that point I'd read them so many times I knew everything that happened so but I was like they were I would read them and I was I was not a brave kid I was not like you Peter who like was like gorier <laughs> grosser scarier like. I like to scare myself. I like to, but I I legitimately scared myself. I was I was not like my own nine year old daughter who I just showed Scream one and two last weekend too, and and she loved them and was was spending more time trying to figure out who people were than than being scared in any capacity. But I was terrible. I would read these books, scare the shit out of myself, have nightmares, wake up my parents, like couldn't stop thinking about them. And like the, the and the first few like stay out of the basement, which I would probably is the first one I ever read, and then I went back to Welcome Dead House. Those are like they're less goofy and silly with their endings. Welcome to Dead House ends with like, um, you know, they eventually got a little bit grinded down, even in like how much they're willing to do horror. But like Welcome to Dead House is about ghouls who have been murdering and drinking the blood of all these families, like. They eventually and there's a real estate agent that's pulling families yeah. in for the offer of cheap real estate, and then eat people. And yeah, up. one one thing they eventually stop doing, a la like the Batman, is like killing people in the books. But the first few books result in a lot of like dead kids and other stuff before they kind of decide. So like, welcome they to that house. Back to it later, like. But probably like, no one cared. Pro- that's probably true. I I missed that. But there was a there was a yeah. there was a middle area where like people stopped dying, or if anyone died, they figured out a way to be like this was a twist that they no one died. Um, Stay out of the basement was the one with like, I mean, an ending that's still like again. I recently reread this book. It is not a great book, but as a kid, that was the first one I ever read, and the dad. You find out that first you think of the dad is turning into a plant monster. Then you realize that he's been creating a plant version of himself. And the end of the book is they he burns all the plants and he says, I'm not going to do this anymore. This has been terrible. The plant version of myself tried to kill me and he kills uh, even though it looked like him. And the end of that book is uh, a plant in the garden talking to the kids saying, I'm your real father. And that is the plant. Like, fucking terrifying like oh my god this like to a, to a nine-year-old uh the one that still gets me uh there well there's two so say cheese and die is like is a camera that you take the picture and then like you see yourself as a skeleton and then those people die like they killed a lot of people in that book and the ending of that is that like two of the people don't like the younger brother and sister find the camera and take a picture of themselves like before it was bullies or teachers and like oh those two kids their younger brother and sister are going to die. Like, that's the end twist of that book. Uh, that was book number four. Um, and then Let's Get Invisible, which is probably still one of my favorites as well, where the twist is like, um, the, the, um, you go into the, you think you're turning invisible, but you're actually going into a mirror dimension through this, through this mirror. And the only way you can tell is that, like, um, it's a mirror. So, like, you eventually – they find out that these other versions of, of of these kids in the mirror universe are actually trying to get them to turn invisible and change places so they can kill them and replace them. And the only way you can tell is, like, if you're right-handed, you're left-handed, right? That If you're left-handed, it's the mirror version. They, they stop everything, but at the end – 
um, the main character's playing catch with his best friends and notices that, like, the guy is throwing left-handed. So his best friend was killed and replaced with an evil mirror, mirror version. Mirror version. Like, again, some fucking terrifying stuff in those books for, like, kids. These are, like, mm-hmm. kids are dying. Terrible things are happening. They're not mincing work. It is when – I think you could maybe say The Girl Who Cried Monsters when things kind of take a change. But I actually don't think so. That's a little bit, like – it's Welcome to Camp Nightmare that is, I think, the twist, Peter, that started – maybe opened up for R.L. Stein to be like, I can just do whatever the fuck I want and and do these kind of twists. Because it was a twist that blew my goddamn mind as a kid. And now that I look back, like the Blob one, it's like, okay, that's kind of like – anyone could do this. This is a twist with no – like you said you were reading the Blob book and like, where did I miss – yeah, that yeah, this was all blob blob based <laughs> storytelling. <laughs> um, but so, did you do you know the ending to Welcome to Camp Nightmare? No. Okay, I definitely that, read that one as a kid, but I don't remember. So they are these kids are at this camp, and they're they're you know there's monsters everywhere. It was a very scary book, and at the end of and there's these creatures attacking them, and and everyone all the counselors are denying what's happening. And everything at the end of it, they stop the monster or whatever else. And they're, you know, everyone believes them. But then you find out that the whole camp was a training mission to um, go to Earth. That we have not been what we have not been seeing human people. We have been following alien children on a training mission to go to Earth to invade us. (laughs) And. Like that, the same thing like that I that you had with the blob book I had with this one where it was like, this this isn't just like a, oh, no, we thought the kid was safe and he's not safe or, oh, no, the evil isn't vanquished. This is something that probably at that age that came out in 1993, I was 10 years old, a twist that reframes everything that we've seen before, like a usual suspects. Or, I, that's probably my first experience with something like that where – it was like, oh, these are not human kids being beset by monsters in a conspiracy camp master. This is an alien invasion force of Earth being trained to handle Earth's atmospheres and the monsters like a wolf so that they – in case they encounter a wolf on Earth. And it was like – you know, that was – I think that was both the thing that kind of like blew my mind and why – Goosebumps, even as a – was my first experience of like that sort of thing, even though it's kind of very lazy writing. But as a kid, you're just like, I didn't know that you could do that. Like it's – I think you should leave. Like I didn't know you're allowed to do that. I didn't know you're allowed <laughs> to write something that changes everything I've read before. And I also think that was his first like in retrospect – oh, yeah, you can do whatever you want if you're not tied to any reality so that you can make this whole thing you've read a a book written by blobs that want to change it so the humans die. Like, you can just do whatever. And and, and I think that, yeah, he had the advantage of being able to introduce kids to these tropes, these storytelling mechanics, like stuff that we consider tired and boring is also because you and I watch a hundred horror movies a year. I don't fucking know. Um... So like we 136 in a month last year for me. <laughs> like, you know, we watch over 100 horror movies a year each and yeah. uh we are very exposed to the tropes and we're very excited when someone finds a new way to surprise us or or does a particularly good job expressing themselves within a particular format even if it's not a, a surprise, right? 
great performances, yeah. yada, yada. Um, the trick there is that, like, he has the advantage that he can do kind of, like, a lot of things, and it doesn't matter if it's tired or cliche or, bo- or, or boring yeah. to an adult audience, because kids are learning all of this shit, and, like, that will, the first time... There's not a New Yorker review going, this is garbage. Like, yeah, it doesn't yeah. matter. It doesn't matter, and also, kids are reading these at a clip. So, to yeah. kind of, like, edge, uh, lean a little bit into my story as well... Um, yeah, I'm interested because you're on the you haven't like some of these ones that I'm mentioning. Have you how many of like the first 20, if you were to look at the list, have you read? Because uh-huh. I'm interested in your story, but I know your story is more like not at the beginning of the phenomenon, but like after. Um, Mine would have been, yeah, when the series started to transition like, I don't know, I was six or seven, so probably around 98, 99, 2000 is probably when my... It's uh, interesting. I started to so, uh, really enjoy it. So, I'm looking at the list of the first books. I definitely read Welcome to Dead House, Stay Out of the Basement, Say yeah. Cheese and Die. I read one of the Mummy books and one of the dummy, uh, the Slappy books. Um, yeah. What we'll note tonight is Slappy is, is sort of the... Um, he became the mascot. He became the mascot, though there was a secondary mascot that you might recognize, which was a cool skeleton guy with a purple mohawk, yeah. um, who was like on all the marketing. So he was like the business side mascot who wasn't in any of the books. Uh, yeah. Skeleton, some skeleton guy. And then Slappy was like the actual mascot because like not only did he have quite a few uh, stories about him, um, he was in so much of the marketing because they finally found a, you know, Pennywise for R.L. Stein. I definitely yeah. read Haunted Mask and we I, I love uh, Werewolf of Fever Swamp. Yep. Uh, I read One Day at Horrorland. I also yep. played the Horrorland video game, which had Jeff Goldblum, um, Isabella Rosalini in it. Steven Spielberg worked on it to some degree. Yeah. Scarecrow Walks at Midnight. Um, I've read all those. Yeah, now we're getting past the first twenty, but like I read quite a few of them. The one well, I you, want to end you... on is A Night in Terror Tower. Was the one that I distinctly remember as a kid scared the absolute shit out of me, and scared the shit out of me like just conceptually for years after that point. Yep, I did. Uh, probably, if you look at A Night in Terror Tower, and we own this one still, is still one of the. Probably one of the last ones I read before I moved on. Because I, I read Night of the Living – well, Night of the Living Dead, me too, I definitely read, which is like – I don't remember I, which slappy ones I read. <laughs> well, but it's, I mean, at that point though, like by – you know, this starts when I'm 92, so I'm nine. By the time like, you know, book 31 and Night of the Living Dead, me too comes out, I'm 12. I'm sixth grade. I'm now buying – that's when I start reading every Star Trek and Star Wars novelization and Blade Runner and like, you know, I'm reading 300, 400 page – not even technically young adult books, but like, I'm I'm my reading level has progressed, and my desire for more complicated story, and also you know a little something for daddy. Uh, I want you know there's more like yeah. sex and adult themes in those uh in those other books as well. What's interesting though, Peter, is that you you mentioned like you were at that age, so I knew there was a break where Goosebumps kind of fell apart before it kind of revved up again. So there's – we're not going to get into every Goosebumps series. I have never read any of the ones that aren't Goosebumps. But 
They did the Choose Your Own Adventure series, which tells to give you goosebumps. Give then give yourself goosebumps, goosebumps, uh, or give yourself goosebumps is the Choose Your Own Adventure. I don't even know what tales to give you goosebumps are. It looks like there was six books, and they were just short stories. So I guess he had short story collections. I wasn't aware. Yeah, he had he had also like Target exclusive things that were like fifty page versions of certain stories that he'd already published. Like yeah, there was. There was just like a well, I yeah, goosebumps. The there's goosebumps. I watched yeah, goosebumps on the entire history, and it's ex- yeah. and it's exhausting how often they would be like. And this series ran for eight books. This series was designed to just anthologize old stories, and some of them got ten pages cut so that it could fit yeah. under the publishing man. Like that shit. That if you really so they, they, that, there was that eight series, eight yeah. series, and two hundred some books mm-hmm. between nineteen ninety two. And 250 books between 1992 and 2000. And then 2000, um, the original Goosebumps series end. They're in Goosebumps series 2000, which still ran. It ran 25 books. Um, uh, the last one released in January of 2000. Last two books are canceled. They are just like, we have milked this thing completely dry. Um, no one's buying them anymore. People, People move on. Yeah, the Arnold problem Stein's is like been laying on this table for a long time, and he has he's gotta, been. He's got. He's got to go. Um, <laughs> well, that's what's interesting, though, Peter, is because like what is very common in kids stuff, and so when you have exceptions like a Pokemon or a Ninja Turtles that survived generations, where like you know kids are watching the new Pokemon, playing the new Pokemon game, or watching the new Ninja Turtles. Um, cartoon, but that's not true for so many stuff. Like, I don't think you're. You know, your generation or whatever, like, did you – you guys didn't have a Transformers and a G.I. Joe phase, really. Maybe a G.I. Joe phase. I I briefly, because they were on Cartoon Network, had a Voltron phase. Yeah, that but, like, fairly so much of that stuff – yeah, so <laughs> much of that stuff ends up dying, right? And, like, so Goosebumps kind of did that. By the time you were nine, Goosebumps was done, right? And that's – somewhere in there you fell in love with – some of it uh, scared the shit out of yourself. And yeah. then it finally picks back up with an actual book series eight years later and the graphic novel six years later in 2000, uh, 2006. By the time now- six is really like 1997 is like when the market started to be cannibalized. And yeah. not just by not just by, you know, um, R.L. Stein, who was cannibalizing his own market by writing so many fucking books. Um <laughs> But by other authors, Christopher Pikes and, and and such, like there were so many authors who were like, I'm going to write uh, horror books specifically targeting kids. And it's going to be very clear from the cover that it's, you know, you can give this to your 10 year old. And like the market had been so cannibalized by like 1997 that it was it, it only had a few more years left of high relevance. Yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, there's a fairly substantial trough. Um, in the 2000s where like very little is being published and most of it is being published for like the nostalgia niche market. They are not doing these mass publishings of, um, you know, they're not doing the mass publishings that make 400 million copies happen as much anymore. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, I don't want to blame it all on 9-11, but I mean, it certainly <laughs> didn't help, I assume. <laughs> and there's a bunch of stuff that happened in here, right? So one of the issues that happened is... 
Um, parachute Alstein's and Scholastic. hand got tired. <laughs> so Parachute and Scholastic, who are handling the books, they have this long-standing um, legal suit. And um, while this was going on, the show got canceled because um, just ratings started to flag and the show, uh, you know, was not worth producing anymore for... For that audience. And then R.L. Stein's contract ran out in the middle of this parachute scholastic spat and they just didn't renew his contract in 2000. So like, yeah, the like he, he scholastic's attention turned to Harry Potter when the suits all settled out. And yeah. I my parents tried to get or my mom tried to get me to read Harry Potter. And I thought that that was uh, dumb shit for fucking nerds. And yeah. history has proven me. I know. Correct. That, that, that's something where I thought it was dumb shit for fucking nerds. I'm like, never. <laughs> if I'm going to watch some fantasy stuff, Lord of the Rings. And I'm not saying that I knew what was going to happen with J.K. Rowling, but I like to think that I, uh, I, I just am right about things. <laughs> <laughs> so if we take a step back, actually, so my Goosebumps era. Um, yeah. I guess it would have overlapped with the era of Harry Potter because I wasn't particularly interested in Harry Potter. I've never been much of a fantasy uh, guy. Um, yeah. And live in the uh, real world, you'd say. Yeah, I'm more of a nuts and bolts guy. Mm-hmm. I like to sit around and read the Wall Street Journal, and shoot the shit about stocks and bonds. Um, so I my my mom. Well, so, so growing up, there's a period of time where despite me not having like bad grades or whatever, my mom thought I had a learning disability. Um, and then we at some point found out that I have ADHD. Um, yeah, but. Uh, it was because I would excel at certain things and do really well at certain things, and I would do horrible at other things, right? So, um, not enough to fail out of grade school or whatever, but that was just part of the deal. And one of the things my mom wanted, she was just like, uh, if I can get him reading, I will feel better as a mother. <laughs> um, and Goosebumps was one of those consistent things that she could hand me, hand me a book, that she had picked up after work one day and I would go up to my room and I would read all of it in one go or most of it in one go before I fall asleep. And eventually she was like, if you read five of these books or whatever, I'll go buy one of the VHS tapes of one of the stories and you'll get to see the show. So on VHS, they released episodes of the show. The show had um, single episodes, which were 20 minutes and then double episodes, which were, you know, 40 minutes and spread across two airings, trying to keep kids tuning in. And the VHS copies were one forty something minute episode. Yeah. Um, and so I had a bunch of these goosebumps tapes from like my mom being like, Well, you finished you finished a bunch of these books? Like here, I, I went and got you a tape as like a reward. And uh I watched the shit out of a bunch of those tapes. I got to rewatch yep. the most fun thing for me this entire episode was getting to rewatch episodes that I watched yeah. as a kid. Um, and yeah, Werewolf of Fever Swamp, um, Welcome to Dead House, like episodes I loved as a kid. Um, I, I, I watched a couple slappy ones. I gotta admit, not a slappy fan. There's nothing there for me. Um, no, there's a, the, Welcome to Dead House has this cute thing where like, it's kind of a Night of the Living Dead riff at one point, And there's like some, a child's version of social commentary in there. That's kind of interesting. Um, oh fever uh werewolf of fever swamp has a thing where i'm like they're really close to a decent twist at the end and they completely get away from it (laughs) so werewolf of fever swamp they basically set up perfectly that 
the werewolves are there's multiple werewolves and they could be the family of the weird drifter yeah but then they're like no actually um they're just werewolves we don't know who they are anyways this kid's a werewolf now it's like (laughs) as a kid i was like oh it's scary that the kid is a werewolf um but uh you know as an adult i can recognize i'm like you set up such a good twist what the fuck were you doing um But the one that really fucked with me um, was uh, A Night in Terror Tower, which was a double episode that I had on VHS. And um, that one fucked with me for a few reasons. Um, But, like, these episodes scared me as a kid. But, like, I was a pretty brave kid for most of this shit. The reason that that one scared me was because, like, it activated a lot of my like fears of abandonment as a child. Like there's a bunch yeah. of episodes. I, I was, I was, you know, I guess I was scared of like that weird executioner guy coming after me to some degree, yeah. but like there'd be episodes that would accidentally tap on like the particular neuroses or fears of the particular child. And yeah. like, um, well, for one, I've been to the tower of London. It's just a museum. Uh, I understand that that's not technically Terror Tower, but it's it's just a museum. They don't. I do mean, all, it all is if you shit. were one of it is it is if you were one of the cultures that is present in the museum. It was a, it was horrific for you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying they don't do the. Corny. One of my favorite tweets is like, uh, "What are people surprised isn't British?" And it was like everything in the contents of the British Museum. <laughs> <laughs> It's pretty good. But um, we'll talk about this episode in a little bit. But like as a kid, I was like terrified of being abandoned in like a foreign country. I didn't like the all the adults in the episode are like particularly very shitty to the kids. Every single adult from the cabbie, like there's literally one adult that's good to them. And he's like their sorcerer buddy. The twist in this episode is insane. Um, amnesia, confusion, helplessness, like they, they start losing objects and losing time and not knowing where they are, like shitty adults being cruel. Um, because, and and like the idea of like your sense of like who you are being challenged, like you're not actually this person, you were a person from the 1500s or whatever. Um, all of that really fucked with me as a kid and scared the shit out of me. I found some of the episodes where it's just like scary monster guy wants to get you. I found those episodes uh, pretty fun as a kid, more or less like good, good, scary. But the Terror Tower episode was the one that I remember as a kid being um, the most disturbing. And then there's a choose your own adventure style series that you just mentioned called. Fucking fucking give yourself goosebumps. Give yourself goosebumps. There's so many fucking ads on this goosebumps wiki. Okay, I, I mean, um, I had a pre goosebumps. I had a, there's a series, of course, called Choose Your Own Adventure, which <laughs> is where that comes from. And I had probably read eighty of those. Those were, I was obsessed with those. I I didn't really like them, but uh, I got handed. You're a, like you're like the Roger Ebert. Like if you get to make choices, it can't be art. <laughs> no, no, no. But about video games. So sc- scary, uh, scary birthday to you was one that I remember being like my love for Goosebumps is over because it was a uh, choose your own adventure kind of story, and I got it. You know, a year or so after, a couple years after I had started my Goosebumps freak out, and um, the. The story is like a kill, a clown 
like takes uh, all these kids hostage at a kid's birthday party and the yep. parents aren't there. And so for Choose Your Own Adventure, I, I remember there being stories where I was like, wow, I thought my character was going to be in big trouble. The story rerouted me to this really cool kind of outcome. In this one, basically like any given choice that you have no idea, like you walk through door number one, door number two, no, door number three, two out of three of those doors will kill you and then the story's over. Yeah. And I remember being like as a kid, just being like, this is exhausting because like you, you you're like, OK, what if I went down door number two and then you go like flipping back through the book to find out. And eventually I had a piece of paper where I was writing down page numbers like mm-hmm. um, and it just turned into this exhausting endeavor where I was just like, give me a fucking book that I can read. And like half of the half of the thing, it, was, it wasn't like you made like a bad strategic error or like in a telltale game or something. It was like, uh, you yeah, exactly. You walked through the wrong door number. Um, and I remember at the time being like, I think I could be done with Goosebumps if this is the direction the series is going in. Obviously, yeah. it was it was a mini series, but I, I think that that was the last Goosebumps book I read because I had a very strong moment where I was like, the clown just killed me 14 times in an hour. I'm done with this fucking book. Yeah. Uh, you didn't, you didn't like, uh, you didn't go ahead and see if you die and go back and like, where did I go wrong? <laughs> um, and so, I eventually, I eventually, my, eventually someone told me, they're like, if you go to page 152 or whatever, um, you can read the good ending. And you're, like, you're at that point, cheats. Yeah, but at that point, you're like, I'm, I'm really just. Can I get a YouTube tutorial? Can I get someone asking me to uh, subscribe uh, and have some, some iffy views on Black Lives Matter <laughs> to, to help me get through this, this choose your own adventure book? Yeah, so the series for me is interesting because I, I think I remember watching one episode of the series, which was uh, the uh, One Day in Horrorland. Which I loved. And I remember being able to watch that because I was at a hotel and my parents were doing something and it was on TV. Uh, and even though it was a Canadian-produced series in the United States, it aired on Fox Kids, at least in its original run. And, uh, it aired on regular Fox on opening night. Did you read this? That on opening night, the Crypt Keeper from Tales from the Crypt introduced the first episode. Oh, that's awesome. Introduced a uh, haunted mask. Yeah, I but I didn't have Fox. Uh, that was not part of network TV yet. Uh, you had to have cable to have that in Bismarck, North Dakota in the 90s. So it was like a combination of watching part of things at sleepovers and like – so I, I never really watched this. I always wanted to. It was – there was a ton of shit on Fox from like Animaniacs and Tiny Toons to Batman, the animated series that I eventually like tried to watch through – home video but by the time this came out on home video again i kind of moved past goosebumps so i was picking other i was picking a movies 13 year olds wanted to watch not going back and trying to watch these goosebumps uh episodes but i should note that my my oldest and had a big goosebumps phase which is why i've reread some of the books as well where she saw the first movie and i was doing the math on this and i realized she saw the first movie when she was four which is so funny because my five-year-old saw a little piece of slappy as we were re-watching these movies which i did with my daughter my oldest daughter and she's like turn this off this is too <laughs> creepy to me uh but um yeah she, my uh so maya and i in like probably like 2019 when she was like four or five we started watching so right now netflix has a random 12 episodes which is actually six episodes because all of these episodes are 
are two-parters. It's the special um, presentation episodes. It more yeah. or less aligns with what would have been on VHS. And they did adapt almost every book. I mean, even some that you're like, how did they do the Praying Mantis one? Like, they did. They had, like... They had a decent amount of episodes. They did eventually pull in, like, from some of the spinoff series to do some episodes. But they did – it ran for, like, 80 episodes over five years. Um, and my, at, in 2018 or 2019, whenever it was that Maya and I started going through these, um, they were all – every single one was on Netflix. I don't know why they've trimmed down to 12, but there was a point where they were all on Netflix. And so we watched a bunch of them. And what was interesting is that most of them were new to me, which obviously has a different – like when you're watching SD quality Canadian acting in the 90s, like some of it was fun. Like I remember watching Stay Out of the Basement and having a really good time with that one. But the other thing we were watching at the time was another Canadian produced horror show called Are You Afraid of the Dark? And it was kind of amazing how much scarier – are You Afraid of the Dark was compared to these Goosebumps adaptations, at least the ones that we saw. So it got to I the always point thought even... Are You Afraid of the Dark was the better show. I liked the uh, Goosebumps show quite a bit, but I yeah. always thought Are You Afraid of the Dark was the one that, like, I would I would go to school on Monday and be like, do you see that fucking clown thing? I'm, I know exactly what you're talking about. We watched that clown episode. It's like, terrifying. It's fucking terrible. I cannot believe that was on a Jake television like, show. Blue blood coming out of his mouth I mean, or something. It, it's, it's it freaked me out. I could not believe it was on a children's show. Um, so eventually we kind of stopped watching. And also, Are You Afraid of the Dark episodes are not two-parters. So, like, the, the ask of, like, do we have to watch 45 minutes versus 25 minutes is a lot when you're a kid. Um, and so we ended up like eventually not watching that many Goosebumps and watching more Are You Afraid of the Darks? And eventually most of the Goosebumps were gone. And I had bought a pack on Voodoo of like 10 – all the Are You Afraid of the Dark? So it's it's interesting though. So it's just because I just – I don't have as much connection to it. For this, I watched Welcome to Dead House because I thought that would be fun because Welcome to Dead House is – I think a, a book that stayed with me even as they got a little more silly and I stopped being scared in that first like six or seven books where it's like they kill kids and it's serious. And also, uh, Maya and I had recently reread Welcome to Dead House like a year and a half ago. So the book was somewhat fresh in my head. And so I'm like, when Peter, when you send me that list of here's what's on Netflix, here's what I can find on YouTube, I'm like, I'm going to watch Welcome to Dead House. One, crazy that at one point that was they attempted to make an actual movie of that. Yeah, uh, directed by George Romero, who did scripts like it got somewhat far along before he got screwed like he did in so much of his work. But the other thing that was interesting is that I I still got a lot of satisfaction from reading the book and I can see why maybe Maya – like – so I'm going to give you an example. And some of this is just budgetary stuff and it's Canadian television. It's the 90s and all the other things that are there. But like – To be fair, both of the, them were made on shoestring budgets. Shoestring budgets. Shows. Like yeah. I I get it. But like the uh, – you know, they change a lot and that's fine. I'm not like how dare you not stick to the Goosebumps source material. But there's like – uh, you know, stuff in the book about this is a big, giant, old house, 
And the kid walks into her giant room and is going through the closets and under the bed. And that's represented in the show by like two – a corner wall and two people like directly in frame, not moving, talking to each other. And like – like it's such a weird thing to complain about. But like the blocking of the show and the minimal sets and the way it kind of reduces everything to this like everything feels – crammed and there's like if you turn the camera one inch you're gonna see like the outhouse or the the restroom sign because like they literally put up a corner or like this is your big room just keep staring into the room it is almost antithetical to horror because it feels like a very confined space not in a claustrophobic way but in a like just look just just believe us that this is a big room that that we're that we're in and i don't know if i was a kid i mean i remember like i said trying to watch this show a lot and what i watched was like oh my god this is so good and so creepy but i can see why if you're a kid and you're reading the book you're going to get more enjoy enjoyment out of it than going back to this show unfortunately i was because i love this like i love this it's an like Everything about this, we love anthology stuff. The fact that they made a fucking Tales from the Crypt for children that's based on this book series that's basically a fucking, you know, Tales from the Crypt book series for children or Twilight Zone with more more horror leanings. But if you are it, – it is one of those things where if you're looking for like what's a good kid show based on horror – like that will scare the shit out of them but still technically is kid appropriate, go watch Are You Afraid of the Dark? Yeah, yeah. I'd say Are You Afraid of the Dark, like, is the show. I, I did, it, uh, when I, um, at a point in my life where, I, before I would go to bed, I would just, like, watch random shit on YouTube, old TV shows on YouTube. Um, and uh, I did have an Are You Afraid of the Dark phase where I watched, you know, 20 episodes of yeah. it or whatever. <clears throat> um, I would say it's a superior, it's a superior show. Um, but what I was surprised by while watching Goosebumps, and I was like, it feels like it's aiming for an audience that's, like, two years younger. Like, Are You Afraid of the Dark could still yeah. work for most teenagers, I would say. Haunted Ma- Like, the Haunted Mask episode is something that would terrify an eight-year-old, but would probably not terrify a ten-year-old, you know? Like, that sort of I thing. agree, because I remember watching The Girl Who Cried Monster, and, like, there's enough shadows, and, like, sometimes the cheap sets make it more creepy and more effective, like you're watching a a faded VHS. It kind of depends. Like, I remember the girl who cried monster still being pretty creepy. And then like, stay out of the basement being like, Oh, this looks like shitty swamp thing. And it looks, it is, she, at one point she's wrestling with a palm tree. Yeah. Um, yeah, stay out of the basement is very funny watching as an adult because there are multiple sequences that are precipitated on, um, do you, uh, equally scary, um, a monster eating you, or disappointing your father. And I was like, this should have been a real red flag when they're writing this story. <laughs> like, <laughs> like if you are a child and you're like, man, I really don't want to disappoint my father. I'm going to go risk death in the basement. Yeah. Like, that's probably a sign that uh, your home life is not particularly good. Maybe you, not maybe you need to pull in someone. Um, but the thing that was appealing but, about these... Oh, sorry, go ahead. But the these episodes, I would say that they're, yeah, they're aiming for, like, an audience that's just a hair younger... I would say I would say that um, yes, there's time where the atmosphere can be lacking. Though I think there's plenty of episodes of Goosebumps that I watched that I thought were like pretty good. Um, like you know, it's a good good spooky story for kids. 
Um, I will say that the, um, yeah, Are You Afraid of the Dark is the show that I watched probably just as many episodes of, but it stuck with me in an indelible way. I remember there's an early episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark where there's a ghost that froze to death and she's going, I'm cold. And that stuck with me. I mean, I watched 25 years ago. <laughs> I watched these in the last like less than five years, Peter, and I know that that episode because we. It's funny you referenced two or three of them. We watched so many because they were so. And also for its work, they did. Um, Nickelodeon did a couple miniseries in the last three or four years. Are you afraid of the dark? Like three part, like the same type of thing. I, Maya and I watched the first two, and they're great. Like That's they're awesome. great little scary things for for kids. So I, I will say I, there's a there's a there's an episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark involving a school and these like pod gooey pod green gooey pod alien things. Um and there's like a school pool that's like full of these like weird like pod plant monster thingies. Yeah. Um and I think they turn into reptiles, I'm trying to remember. But uh, the point is, I had this in, these indelible images from Are You Afraid of the Dark in my head. And I was like, I can't wait to see that. And I was watching the Goosebumps uh, episode, Stay Out of the Basement. And then I yeah. thought, and then I, I, I like, while I was watching, I was like, oh, that's the other show. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, though, and why I think, like, the TV show is so appealing, and this is a good transition to the movies – is because when you're a kid, even if it's something you love, right? Like, I love the Goosebumps book. I, like all children, not all, I guess not all children, this is probably a broad, too broad of a generalization, but I'd say most children are like, wow, this is so scary. I would love to see this as a movie or a TV. Like, I would love to see my what I'm seeing in my imagination come to life because they felt so cinematic i want to i get to these the covers of the original goosebumps books are great uh p.s if you they eventually re-released most of them with like new covers i don't know if that was part of all the new covers are absolute like i don't know why they're like make them terrible but just like like go look up monster blood versus like any of yeah. You literally find any of them. Every single one is a huge step down. This happened with Stephen covers. King, too, where, like... It happened with Scary eight. Stories. Do you remember when they read all the illustrations and Scary Stories to tell in the dark? until they were like, too what scary the f- for kids. Yeah, what are you doing? Uh, yeah. So Tim, Tim Jacob... That's, I still have my original Scary Stories to tell in the dark books because of that period. I think they now went back and they were like... They did. We're going to reprint. And then they made a movie that was rated R, right? The movie is It's rated PG-13, but like it's how intense. it's rated PG. It is uh yeah, Maya seen some scary stuff and that was one of the most scary ones yeah. that she saw. Yeah. So T- Tim Jacobus is the guy who did the art for the original series and some of the other spin-offs and stuff, and Tim <coughs> Jacobus was I think as part of the story is R.L. Stein because those covers were so indelible. The cover for the Haunted Mask, like, even makes an appearance on, like, a skateboard in one of the episodes because it's such an iconic image. And, like, I remember as a kid being, like, the cover of Night of the Living Dummy is so scary. And then seeing the actual Slappy in the episode and being like, this is bullshit. Um... (laughs) Yeah, well, all of whatever them. Like, my, I mean, whatever my eight-year-old brain version of this is bullshit, I remember being like, you made him into kind of a dweeb. 
I mean, so they were all just like even the stay out of the basement was just that fucking detailed hand reaching up. Like they were, um, it, it, you know, I know technically you're not supposed to judge a book by by its cover, but as a kid, it was like <laughs> whatever this is is going to be terrifying. And so, like that one image that you're just like, I want to see this image, I want to see this story projected on the screen. But yeah, the even the stuff that I saw at the time, it's like this wasn't quite what I had in mind when when it comes to like what you're mentioning. Now, eventually, you grow up and you realize that like you have to accept that like it's why everyone says you know uh, watch the movie before you're reading a book normally because like it's better for like you you're never gonna see what you're imagining in your head on the screen. But I would say that like. There's a pretty big letdown between what I was imagining in Welcome to Dead House or Stay Out of the Basement and what is projected on the TV show. That's not the fault of the TV show. The TV show rules. I'm so glad it was successful and so – and I imagine that it, like, was great for a lot of kids. But it's all – it's a cheap Canadian production at a time when no one was trying to – even kid shows, like, have the budget or even just have the special effects or anything else to do it. So – one of the things that was appealing, and it's kind of amazing that it took till 2015 to make a Goosebumps movie, uh, considering that there was attempts early on in the 90s. I mean, it sold 400 million copies. Like, every Stephen King short stories are all movies, right? Like, the fact that no one ended up making a Goosebumps movie at, in that, like, 1992 to 2000 period is incredibly amazing, even though I know there was multiple attempts to do so. So, it's interesting that finally in 2015, basically at a time when Goosebumps is seeing some level of resurgence in both reprinting and nostalgia, that they decided to make a movie. And, um, yeah, well... I say, Peter, we're we're not going to do plot by plot recaps because I actually just want to talk about um, the broad strokes of both these yeah. movies because I think they're very. It's a very interesting way to adapt an anthology series into something that speaks to the conceptual con- or the the concept of the series as a whole, as opposed to adaptation of a specific work, uh, but. Peter, are you ready to talk about Goosebumps 2015 and Goosebumps 2 Haunted Halloween? Let's do it. Let's boo it. Let's boo it. So, I think the best way to do this is just – because I kind of want to just talk about them both as, like, attempts to make Goosebumps movies because they are connected, but they end up being their own thing. So, <laughs> and let's just talk Goosebumps about – Goosebumps 2 as, like, a reboot. Yeah. Um, so – It has almost no characters in common. It has monsters in common, and it yeah. has a very, very small role from Jack Black's version of R.L. Stein in common. Yeah. So – 
because I, I want to be able to compare and contrast a little bit. And, and obviously, we just don't have the time to go through like, well, here's our hour on Goosebumps and here's our hour on Goosebumps, too. And I, I actually don't think we need to do that because this episode is more about Goosebumps as a whole. These make sense to cover as centerpieces because they are the essentially the biggest thing in the last 25 years from Goosebumps, the series, besides like reprints and a few other minor series, they they finally made a couple Goosebumps movies. Now, the f- uh, it's interesting that uh, uh, they're, they're made by Sony Animation is the production company, which was like them kind of getting into live action, which is a little bit bizarre. It's also but bizarre fir- because uh, the animation is the worst part of these movies. <laughs> Yeah, and like the 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 idea of like when you're making a Goosebumps movie based on an anthology series, like you see it from Tales from the Crypt, right? You basically have a couple options. You can do a uh, adapt a, a Tales from the Crypt type story or Twilight Zone type story into a movie. And so you can do Demon Knight or you can do Bordello of Blood or something like that and say we're going to do a story in the style of this. And we're going to present it as like Goosebumps presents Welcome to Dead House or something like that. Um, or you can do it as an anthology. There's a bunch of different stories to pick from. We're going to do 20-minute versions of this and make an anthology horror movie. And I think it's interesting the way they decided to, to do a Goosebumps – even scary stories to tell from, from – uh, scary when they did the scary stories to tell in the dark movie – it is them taking a consistent group of characters through almost an anthology-like experience of some of the most famous stories from the first book. All of these um, stories happen in the small town. Yeah, but they're so, but they're all. Like, uh, but yeah, it's 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 almost a it's almost an anthology horror. The first you have the toe situation, then you have this, and it's affecting the same group of friends. But it is it is uh, it is doing it from that perspective. This is a. They both of these movies adapt it from some a metatextual perspective that uh, everyone knows what these Goosebumps books are. R.L. Stein is a real person, and essentially that these books were created by R.L. Stein to keep the monsters at bay, which is that he wrote them on a magic typewriter that brings, which is also a Goosebumps reference, um, as we just talked about uh, from the blob that ate everything. Um, and it essentially is like, what if we just kind of knowing that, I think from a nostalgic standpoint, even though this movie isn't necessarily named, uh, aimed at, this isn't like scary stories to tell in the dark, where we're going to make a fucking scary movie for people who are now in their thirties, theoretically, who were scared by these, by these books as kids, but it's something that is not it's still adaptations of children's stories, so we're not going to make it hard R and add sex or other things that would get it a hard R rating. But they are saying, like, this is kind of saying we don't want people to go and go, oh, I really wanted to see the werewolf of Fever Swamp or I really wanted to see the abominable snowman of Pasadena. What if we give them a lot of what they're looking for? And so the first movie is really the plot is, you know. Uh, kid, very very common children's Disney type plot. Uh, the the there's a there's a high school protagonist. His dad has recently died. His mom has relocated from New York to a small town to be a vice principal. Then moving next door to R.L. Stein, played by Jack Black, in a performance I absolutely love. There's a lot of iffy stuff in this first movie, but him starting out as a very creepy person and then turning into a very goofy 
uh, inept and defensive person is a great switch because Jack Black is good at playing both of those. And I also think, like, this might be digging a little too deep. I also think it thematically works because Goosebumps presented themselves as a series as scary stories for kids and then ultimately became very goofy and silly many of the times until it basically was just like, this is goofy and silly and it has horror trappings and elements. So I think Jack Black playing those two sides of R.L. Stein, which is kind of a I, – I like I like it quite a bit. Because he does seem like he's going to be playing this creepy old, like, stay out of my house. I'm R.L. Stein, And then by the end, he's like, Stephen King wishes he had my – like, he, he's more worried about a stupid station wagon. Like, it is it, – it's a funny turn and it's a very funny turn, I think, for kids too because it's like at first he does scare you and then he becomes um, silly and goofy. Uh, but – Higher level, he has a daughter who he's like. Can we pause there? We got we got to pause yeah. there though. Okay. Before we get, well, I was going to come back to it. But yeah. Go ahead. We got we got we got to pause there. Um. So the well, interesting thing is a lot of kids are familiar with R.L. Stein's like persona, um, because he would actually like before he the, intro the the Goosebumps episodes. Yeah, in a sort of um, in a sort of um, Alfred Hitchcock presents kind of way, in a very deadpan way. And he would have usually come back at the end with like a little joke and the killer dog from the episode would be in there. We also didn't talk about how the theme song for the Goosebumps show is a fucking banger and they didn't get to bring it back for the movies, which is a real shame. Um, But uh, (laughs) and there's a part in the Goosebumps opening (laughs) opening, uh, intro for every episode, the opening credits for every episode of Goosebumps where... Uh, like the Goosebumps logo goes over over a golden retriever, and then his eyes turn yellow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he turns into a scary gold, golden dog. retriever. Yeah, it's very funny. Um, but his persona is this deadpan, calm kind of guy, yeah. right? And he's like not even creepy. He's just sort of aloof. He's just sort of like he's like hope you had a good time. Hope you didn't get too scared. Like he has this sort of like calm, and like it felt like a nice comfort in the beginning and the end of the episode because it is almost like you know while while your mom's at fucking work and you're watching these episodes or whatever there's an adult present there's an adult present who's like i just wanted to have a little bit of fun with you hope you have a nice night don't be too scared like there was like a, a, a presence there jack black's character is a completely original creation it seems to have no correlation with the actual rl stein um and i find that uh and he direct well but he also directly addresses Constantly criticisms leveled against the real R.L. Stein in real life. He he says like his he comments on the concept of his books being hacky and for kids. He comments on like uh, that he's like he, he defensive about how good his book sales are, so they must have hit a chord. He like it's it obviously R.L. Stein is approving of this adaptation. He has cameos in both movies. Um, there, there's some level of approval from him and the fact that they constantly um, – because the characters in the movie think that Goosebumps is stupid and for little kids. And the fact that they constantly level these – these that they're ghostwritten and he didn't write all of them. Like that's all in the movie in a very funny way and that's how they get under Jack Black's R.L. Stein's skin to the point that they get him to help and participate and do all this stuff. And I think – 
I kind of think that's a, a kind of a mini brilliance of a move to recognize that like R.L. Stein is not considered in especially from adults and even kids of this generation, a horror master like a Stephen King or an Alfred Hitchcock. He obviously has been very successful, but he's seen a little bit as a joke and an also ran. And so the fact that they constantly address that directly and kind of make him a joke and an also ran while trying to give him a little bit of pathos in or pathos in like, Hey, yeah, I was a like I don't know how much it's true that he like was a bullied kid, although I can imagine it's true. Um and wrote these stories as a way to like escape from his existence and that's why he became a writer. Like I I find that kind of incredibly impressive as a way to approach um a Goosebumps movie and I also think it allows where I think this movie takes an interesting approach, which is, hey, since R.L. Stein is going to be a character in this movie and the Goosebumps books are real, it allows us to not be tied into one particular book or story and be able to, through their their premise of all these books are real, by writing them almost like New Nightmare style, he's exercised the demons and locked them within the, the stories, literally, in his house, in the original manuscripts, but they can get out and torture people because he, through his imagination and bullying, had brought them to life, uh, literally through his writing, as he did, you know, uh, figuratively for so many for so many children in the real world. So I, I really I do like that as a as a concept. I'm not saying the movie is always successful, but I think I think I can I think accept like, it. It's yeah. just it's very funny that the real version of Arl Stein that we were sorry the version of Arl Stein that we were introduced to, and then the version that like I've seen in interviews and stuff is this like somewhat private, very humble, very just sort of like sweet old dude who's just like. I think it's pretty nice that I made a living scaring kids for a, yeah. a bit. And, you know, maybe if people aren't reading my Goosebumps stories anymore, that's fine. But, like, that, it is it is very funny because there's – what I'll say in defense of that is that I don't know how you build a character arc off of that with any actor. I don't know. Yeah. If, if you bring in fucking Stephen Jenkins as R.L. Stein, I don't know how you build a character arc off of quiet, humble guy – um, and, you know, you go from there. Like, I, I, don't, I don't even know where that the next step is. The idea that he's, like, um, anxiously trying to contain the anxiety of his work and trying to control his legacy is, like, a good, funny kind of character bit yeah. in, in, a, in a sort of, if you can sort of compartmentalize that well. Um, I will say, like, one thing that's, there's two things that hold me back from loving this movie. One is, like, this is not on the movie, but like the trope, Stephen King does this shit too. The trope of like the writer whose typewriter is actually magic or the writer is actually magic. I find that compelling almost never. And Stephen King just keeps well, going back to the story of a, magi- a magic writer all the fucking time. And I almost never find that compelling. I'm always I, like, I love Man, it. I love that you they hit a writer's it. block and now I have to deal with your fucking bullshit that came out of it. Like I have to I, sort out your fucking writer's block. God I damn agree. It. I agree. However, I love the way they subvert that in the sequel, which we'll talk about here in a second. Um, This movie also does a very smart thing where even though there's essentially a um – a, uh, a, 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 it's it's kind of a, sta- a standard a- affair, right? The kid moves in, 
to a new town. He finds a nerdy best friend who takes to him. And there's a, there's a romantic love interest of a neighbor. The neighbor ends up being Hannah Stein, who is R.L. Stein's daughter. I think the twist, while fairly obvious what's going on, um, I think it's still kind of a good one that he is – uh, the reason why so many things are weird and he's private about her daughter and homeschools her is that she is a creation from one of his books that essentially got out. I'm not going to – it's a children's movie. I think there's a lot of like, OK, that's weird that you've created a 16-year-old that now lives perpetually as a 16-year-old and is your daughter and like you have a father-child relationship with that kid. Like you didn't raise him for birth. She doesn't have a mom. He thinks that she doesn't know that she's a she's a uh, uh, fiction created to be his daughter and to have someone in in his life. She does, and she notes you can only have so many six, sixteen birthdays before you kind of figure out what's going on. I don't think there's anything this is like weird for Arl Stein's actual children. <laughs> yeah, maybe um, it is. It is. It is pretty cookie cutter stuff that I still think works enough. Like my daughter is very invested in their relationship. Like you know, they are sweet. They are charming. They are cute kids. Like it. You know, it. I think it's it's fine if a little over over the plate. I think another way that this movie gets some things right is, which good kid movies that you want adults to appreciate or like does. Is even though none of them have enough to do, which I will say off the bat, it fills it with a few very funny ringers who all get some very funny lines in. Uh, Timothy Simons, who most people would know as uh, Judah from Veep. Uh, is the the chief of police who uh, and then he has a I don't know his he has a, an apprentice he's training but there are some very funny lines about how inept these small town cops are the fu- the funniest one is when Arl Stein tries to cover up that he there was screaming in his house with playing with playing uh, a horror movie and goes I didn't know being an audiophile was a crime and the apprentice cop is like you're a what a and pulls his gun <laughs> I think that's very funny clearly all also aimed at uh, the adults watching this, not not children. Ken Marino as a as as uh, the coach for the school, who immediately likes Amy Ryan's vice principal character, who's the mom. While she has absolutely no interest in him whatsoever, is a very funny like play on like oh mom mom gets some romance too. Jillian Bell. I think is funny as the sister as well. So they, they understand like, let's also try to make this funny and let's get some not huge names. Although I would say Ken Marino is a huge name, but that's because they I get the state. Um, the sequel tries to do this, I think to less effective degrees with some of their, and maybe that's just because I think we're all sick of Ken Jong. but uh, <laughs> we'll, well, we can we can talk about that in a second, but yeah. So it it does it does that whole thing. It, it does the trope of all the so many of the monsters, and like I got a kick out of that. Like it's not to be able to see like all these things from my childhood in a movie, even though Slappy ends up being the main antagonist in both of these movies. Who I I still think the Slappy puppet is creepy. I think there's enough. It's, like it's one of the creep- only monster effects that I think like is consistently good in the two movies. Uh, I like the balloon spider quite a bit. Yeah, that looks good. One. That looks good. Yeah, I just mean um, like a lot of the a lot like the abominable snowman and the the werewolf in particular looks like dog yeah. shit. Like, looks like dog shit. 
Um, yeah. but I think, I think Slappy more or less looks pretty good. I know they had to yeah. put, they put extra time in him cause he has a lot more screen time. Also yes. Slappy is voiced by Jack Black. Yeah. And they do enough creepy things of like light switching off and Slappy moving positions and like, like it, it works as some good creepiness, but essentially, yeah, the plot is, is that the Goosebump book are real. Everything gets released. They save the school and Jack Black realizes that instead of shunning society, that there's good in society. Um, the daughter gets sucked. They essentially they have to they have to write a new story and suck everyone back into the book. Um, the daughter gets sucked into, but then he writes another story and begins to teach at the at the high school. Um, you know, it's it's it, I think it's it got very well. Like it it got a lot of like. I think it has like a whatever Rotten Tomatoes, but it's like it has 79 on Rotten Tomatoes. People are like, hey, this is a really good kid horror movie that is scary at parts that does something interesting with a kind of very tough to adapt just because Goosebumps doesn't mean one story. It means a lot of stories and it did it in a satisfying way that's funny, uh, scary at times and does all those things. And like I want to I want to just before we kind of get to compare and contrast and. That kind of stuff. So that's one way to adapt Goosebumps. We're going to say Goosebumps is real. And we're going to just say, here's R.L. Stein, And we're not going to try to tell a Goosebumps story. We're going to tell a story about the concept of Goosebumps books. And in the sequel, which is, again, almost an anthology entry, even though R.L. Stein, played by Jack Black, is in it for a little bit, they take almost the other approach, which is, okay, if we're not adapting a specific Goosebumps story. What if instead we take the themes of Goosebumps and write a new story? And so Goosebumps 2 is based on a unpublished, theoretically, Goosebumps manuscript that R.L. Stein never finished. So it's like we are creating a new entry in the Goosebumps series that takes elements from Goosebumps and actually I think a very clever way and we're going to do we're going to do that story instead of we're going to do a new entry in Goosebumps canon with a unpublished manuscript and tell that story. And that story is about, again, a little different characters um, where it's about um, two friends and her and his old uh, one of the friends, older sister, who um, they are they end up finding this unpublished manuscript called Haunted Halloween. Slappy is a character in it. R.L. Stein later says it's the first book that he ever wrote. And in it, R.L. Uh, Slappy wants a family. And when he doesn't get a family, he he makes Halloween come to life. And I, and so it's a little more like leaning into some stranger things, not too hard, but like kids doing things and fighting stuff. The parents are less part of the overall saving the plot or adults are less part of uh, saving the plot, which my daughter loved that the kids solve everything without bringing an adult. She specifically was like kind of happy that Jack Black gets there to save the day and it's already been solved. Like there was something about like, yeah, we don't need the parents to save us from the monsters that she, that resonated with her. But essentially they slappy gets out of the book and then slappy ends up being, upset when he's not accepting this family because he's an evil demonic puppet he's not like he's not like really trying to uh, ingrain himself into their family dynamic except doing uh hacks and pranks 
on everyone t- until making his uh, pants fall down. Yeah, making him fall uh, down again. Making him fall that. down again. It actually gets kind of creepy after the first time. <laughs> yeah, like Slappy, you are. We don't know how old that puppet is. Yeah. You're theoretically hundreds of years old, and this is yeah. a child. Yeah. Um, Quit pulling his so, pants down, Slappy. And so I think the the kind of brilliance of this of like we're going to tell a new Goosebumpsian story. If that's a word, Goosebumpsian. 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 Um, is that they still are like, well, we don't want to just do a slappy story, even though this fundamentally is a slappy story. So Slappy's revenge um, is that he uses his powers and a Tesla thing that is the less commented on, the better. The weird, like, let's make this the town that Nikola, Nik- Nikolai Tesla did most of his research and built a tower that, like, st- stupid. But, um, <laughs> that, uh, that essentially, he uh, is like, I'm going to bring all of Halloween to life, which means everything from people's decorations, their balloon spiders that are as big of a house, to gummy bears to life. And I think the genius there of still saying we know that people just saw 20 or 30 Goosebumps characters or monsters in the last movie. We don't want to do the same thing again. But guess what they have? People decorate and there's costumes that feature Goosebumps characters. So by him bringing everything Halloween-y to life, which is a good horror concept to begin with, it still allows them to include – recognizable Goosebumps characters or things that they did in the first movie, like a haunted mask or something like that, because by bringing Halloween to life, Halloween includes, especially in this town, Goosebumps related merchandise. And so, yeah, uh, it's sort of embracing that that Goosebumps is like a marketing juggernaut. Like I had Goosebumps video games. I had Goosebumps t-shirts. I had Goosebumps puzzles. Like it's, it's embracing that as part of the, the shtick. Yeah, and and so the you know the mom gets turned into a dummy. The kids need to save the day, and they do call R.L. Stein for help, saying we think one we found an old manuscript and and get to, and want um, and believe it's come to life. And I love that he shows up to save the day, but the kids have already figured out a way to both suck people into the book and then eventually electrocute and kill Slappy. So by the time that R.L. Stein or Jack Black gets there with his typewriter. And everything else, he's like, I'm going to need a Diet Coke. I'm going to need space. I'm going to write the ending to this story like I did the last time, essentially, and save the day. And they're like, we've already solved the the whole the whole thing. Yeah. We, we are unneeded in this. And I – like, I think that's – I think that's fun. And I think it's interesting that they did, um, you know, how do you ta- – you're doing a metatextual commentary on the cultural phenomenon of Goosebumps as your way to – bring Goosebumps to life in the first movie. How do you top that without just going, okay, well, we did that. Do we do it again? Do we do Monster Blood? Do we do Seichi? Like, what do we do now that we did that? Do the characters run into the same situation again where books get out? And I do think the sequel going, even though it was due partially because the director wasn't available and Jack Black and uh, his daughter wasn't as available as they initially thought, played by uh, Adea Rush, She's not in the movie at all. Um, that they're like, what if we just do a new Goosebumps book featuring Slappy and figuring out a way to still have some of the other characters? Like, I, I think that's a pretty brilliant way to do yeah. a follow up sequel. 
I think the char- the characters in the original movie are so the, the the children in the original movie are just so forgettable. Um, they're so generic. They are such like cookie cutter. Like c- yeah, uh, they're cipher. There's the you know the two main people um, are it's c- it's template, which is why it's like Disney template. template shit. And then there's a comedic relief character who is largely yeah. not funny. And then I'm like, why don't you put the funny jokes into our main character, and then the main character will have personality. You ever think of that? Um, but they they chose not to do that. Um, He's just a handsome new kid in town. He can't be funny too, Peter. I the girl in in the second movie, I think, is like more complexity to her. At least I know what she wants. Um, I know what she wants, and they like they don't. They basically are like, we don't need a high school romance in this. As a matter of fact, like they dispense her with boyfriend. Her. Yeah, her boyfriend's cheating on her, and she's like. It's just, like, more stress in her life, right? Yeah. She's trying to apply for college. She's trying to spend time with her boyfriend. Her boyfriend sucks. Now there's a fucking living dummy in their house. Yeah. So, I think that... I also think the two nerd kids in this are, like, way more of characters. Yeah. Um, What I'll say between the two movies. The first movie, which I enjoy, is a real... It's it's a trifle. Like, it's it's a a real, um, like, novelty piece. It's a theme park ride where you go through the Universal Studios ride and you get to see yeah. all your favorite characters. And it's a fireworks factory. There's essentially no character development. There's essentially nothing that, that makes you like these characters at all. They are they end up being ciphers. And R.L. Uh, Stein is... Well, the, the main arc, character arc is R.L. Stein, right? Exactly, exactly. The kid, but the kids are supposed to be the main characters in the first yeah. one, and because Jack Black is there, like, he's... You're gonna, you're gonna. You're, he's a charisma sponge, right? Like, you, you know. Yeah, I'm sorry, Dylan Minnette. Uh, you're no Jack Black. <laughs> he that kid is such a forgettable, like, uh, forgettable. Uh, well, he's in. Um, you know what he's in, right? A show I've never watched, but he's the main character why? in Thirteen Reasons Why. The the, which, the 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 most problematic show on Netflix. Um, my my wife watched it. I never watched it. Um, but yeah, I, I, so I don't know if he's killed himself. He's gonna kill himself for that show. But yeah, they. Uh, I can't imagine he's very. I hope he's not method in this in the sad show. Um, but yeah, I don't think he's a terrible actor. He's obviously very like handsome or whatever. But like he, he, a lot of the movie roles he's been in, I've been like, who are you? Like I yeah. I feel like I've seen you before. He is but- he is like. What was that? What was that movie we watched when, when we were doing our February month of like franchise, like uh, sci-fi franchises that didn't take off? Like he is so like the, he could be the second male lead in a Mortal Engines movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if you told me he was British, I'd be like, that explains a lot. Like he, he like scrubbed off his british accent to be in american movies and now he has no personality like yeah anyways i don't blame him whatever he's a young kid i'm sure he'll show himself uh better in a lot of these movies i think he's good in he's in um uh, oh. not scent of a woman quite um so in don't breathe he's like you know it's a good movie but he's he's largely i don't nobody. Re- i don't remember he's, he's good in at all he's good in the dropout um <laughs> Which is the Theranos show. Like, you know, I'm not saying he's like a bad actor oh, yeah. or whatever, but like in the first movie, he literally has nothing to do. At least the nerd kids in the sequel have something to do. Here's what I'm going to say is that the second movie structurally is way more my bag. 
Because the first movie yeah. is the theme park ride. It's just like, here's a monster, here's a monster, here's, here's a monster. Occasionally they put them in clever settings, but very often they don't. They're just like, now the praying mantis is here. Um, like putting the abominable snowman in a nice rink is at least like po- poking at a concept, yeah. right? Um, but, uh, in the second one, I really like the idea of Slappy as this sort of, like, maestro of chaos, and that, like, you get 40 minutes of a, of a Slappy movie, and then he, uh, decides that he's gonna use, um, his magic, his inherent magic to, um... Which, which enhances using the space needle that Nikolai Tesla built in this small town in... Not state New York or something. Yeah. Um, um, but he but the, the, the idea that he's going to um like bring in uh magic into this world and he's gonna bring the monsters back, but he's not just opening a book and a monster appears in this sort of He like, is just he's of, just he's turning everything that's and I I liked it as a concept. I, I think it's that, like they have works. a bouquet I, with like eyes. Like I like that every literally every Halloween direct, uh decoration comes to life. It also helps that this town really goes nuts. When yeah. it comes to how, like, it's 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 really good, and there's so much fun stuff they do with it. That's not like sure they have the werewolf of Fever Stomp Swamp Halloween costume, and that that's there. But most of the best things are like the headless horseman display that comes to life, or even like the gummy bears conceptually. Now, I will say this about the gummy bear scene: I like the concept that everything is coming to life that's Halloween related, including the candy. Good concept. I need directors of movies in general. I don't know. I know. I don't know. What about from the director of The Duff? The designated (laughs) ugly fat. I just need all directors to recognize the limitations (laughs) of seat. I know. (laughs) But I'm just saying, like, it's not. I'm not directing it specifically to him. I just need more directors to recognize the limitations of CGI Mm -hmm. and to recognize that, like, Unless you're figuring out a practical way to do gum, which you could probably do. You could probably do practical gummy bears with some CGI additions to make them move. But I also need you to understand that I'm watching a guy on a horse with fire in his uh, – with with a fire head that looks that's, – that's actually a guy in a horse with probably his head cut off and, and fire superimposed on, it looks pretty good. There's a, pretty good. I'm, I'm watching a practical giant upside-down bat that starts as a decoration and becomes an actual thing that glows. And they featured those gummy bears heavily in the trailer. It looks like shit. It looked like shit in 2018 when this movie came out. And also, I need you to understand that if you are like, I, this, this might look like shit – it's only going to get worse every year. Even the stuff that we thought was amazing. Go back and watch Ant-Man and and go, oh, that no longer looks like they they went back in time and brought Michael Douglas to it. It looks like a CGI creation because now we're used to it. We know it's like – I imagine they use similar stop. tech to make the blob who ate everything, everyone in um, the first movie. It looked yeah. bad then too. Um, understand the limitations of your tech. I don't know why your tech has limitations because this is a big budget family movie made by an animation studio, but, um, really like this is the, this is, this is a real scenario where I'm like, I like the idea here, but this looks like dog shit. And Um, it's a movie that does use enough practical effects that they get that like not, if this whole thing was, was everything was CGI, 
it would look like shit. But both movies actually understand, like, hey, a guy in a costume with a pumpkin mask with some CGI, like, additions mm-hmm. is going to look better and scarier. And then they have, like, yeah, the blob and they have the fucking gummy bears. And it's like, yeah. And, and, and I like the Oops All Monsters concept is great in a movie like um, Cabin in the Woods for a third act twist where like um oh you the you know exactly like which monsters you can have in uh uh you know a wide frame as a cgi reference and then which monsters like the the merman thing the mermaid thing that you need to like fucking work on you need to get like spend time doing a practical effect this movie a lot of it is like a lot a lot of it feels like they're like uh yeah the cgi dorks have this right and then the guys were like yep we got it and then six months later like the movie comes out and it doesn't look very good um i i also could be a situation just like marvel movies where they just rush Rush, rush, rush! These animators. I don't totally know, especially if they're. I mean, I have to imagine that if they like are writing the scene and directing the scene with the gummy bears, and they're like, "Hey, are you guys using practical effects?" and they go, "No," you're gonna go, "That's gonna look like shit." Yeah. Like, and they make it such a big centerpiece. I don't know. Like, I just. Which people had? I I also I love conceptually. I love the idea here that they're like, um, the masks, like the horror masks, are actually um turning people like you get if slappy can get a horror mask on someone it turns them into a monster like and they join his thrall i think that's a rad idea it's also a way to reference the haunted mask in a clever way it's um i think um you know like that's a cool idea like what if there's an entire sequence earlier on of slappy like sneaking up behind people and putting masks on them or finding ways to yeah. get people to try the mask on or whatever like there's there's a lot of concepts in the second one that are kind of pointing at like the great goosebumps movie but um unfortunately they end up just being like very slight very fun movies to watch with your kids i think like there is probably a way to fix this structure and make mm-hmm take the best strengths of both movies, fix this structure and find a way to like, have like the kids off on one adventure, Jack Black on his adventure. But the idea of just like these, like magic books that flip open and then a monster comes out. And then there's just like a deluge of CGI monsters running all over town that don't look very good. It's just not, it's not visually appealing. It's not conceptually appealing. Like it's just kind of, it's just kind of nothing. And a lot of the first movie is just like an extended chase sequence, right? Like there's a lot, a lot in that fucking car in the first movie. <laughs> like, yeah. So I, I, I think I'm, I, we may have given similar ratings. I gave both of these three and a half stars. I think I'm more generous on these in concept. They are mainly because I think, well, first of all, and I'm not trying to, to, to say this is like a Trump card. I've watched, them with actual children. Um, a five-year-old and then later that same nine-year-old. Uh, and the first Goosebumps movie she would watch over and over. And over and over uh, again when she was five. Um, I think part of the reason I'm willing to be pretty generous in my assessment of these movies is they are uh, enjoyable for adults. They have some good, true horror stuff. Um, especially the second movie has some great effects and monsters coming to life and some stuff like that. Um, 
I also think that they just don't make movies like this anymore. This These movies are meant to be funny. They're meant to be PG kid movies. And they also are meant to have some legitimately scary imagery and parts. Uh, Slappy, a character that I, I've said I'm not a fan of, is scary in the first movie. It's not scary to me, a 40-year-old man. But, like, it is scary enough to to kids both by the design the way he moves the stuff he says um like i just like i think in the 80s they were more interested in making and this has kind of been our i think this is a good way to wrap up because this has kind of been our through line for the month that like Coraline is a weird exception but stuff like the witches is a kid movie that is scary and it has funny parts but it's scary. Something Wicked This Way Comes is an insane movie. It is technically for kids. And it is it is scary. These are, yes, this is not Something Wicked This Way Comes. And this is not Coraline. Those are better movies. Everything else we've covered this month are better movies than these two movies. But it is actually doing something that movies tend to, if, if you're a horror movie for kids... You are either Hotel Transylvania or the Adams Family, like CGI version, which is like, we are going to do horror elements because kids like Dracula and they like Frankenstein and they like monsters and stuff like this. But we're not going to be scary because then the kids won't come. And so you end up with these like ideas of horror. Kids have so much access to horror imagery without actual scary stuff in them in a way that I feel like was – I mean, we would watch – and we started the month talking about this. You would watch A Secrets of, of Nim or you would watch Return to Oz or something like that and see some fucking scary shit. And those aren't really horror movies. They're just like, you know, movies from from uh, animators and, and directors who did too much cocaine and didn't feel like they – like they, they, they were okay scaring kids. And so I do think these Goosebumps – or you end up with like I think the other side of it, which is like Stranger Things or Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark – which are theoretically about children and that kids could watch them, but have stuff that scares adults pretty strongly. And so finding that balance of a movie that um, kids like is scary, but still is a PG horror movie, I just don't feel like it exists anymore. And the fact that they made two – the fact that they made two – Vastly different styles, vastly different attempts at the source material that you're right. They're not not scary stories to tell in the dark. Scary stories to tell in the dark is a fucking great movie. And as I've rewatched that recently, I'm like, that is – I'm so bummed that the pandemic may have stopped that sequel forever because – it's actually, I would say, the worst thing that came out of the pandemic is that they won't make scary, scary stuff because I loved it. And it's so good and so scary. And it gets those books 100% right. And the thing about that comparison is also recognizing that scary stories to tell in the dark as book as a book series is a million times scarier and better than the Goosebumps series. I have a ton of affection for Goosebumps. They are apples and oranges when it comes to how committed they are to scaring the shit out of children. <laughs> um, and uh, and so I, I think these are like commendable, commendable for what they're doing, even if 
like a monster squad and like a lot of any a lot of those other like horror movies from the 80s like little monsters or monster squad or these like kind of scary as shit pg horror movies for kids that came out in the 80s and 90s most of them are not five star movies or even four star movies but at least there's something that kids enjoy quite a bit and they're giving you the right amount of spooks and i do feel like these two movies do that and like i said i mean I have a kid who absolutely loves these movies and finds them scary. And I have a five-year-old who walked in when Slappy was around and asked me to turn it off immediately because it was the scariest thing she had ever seen. <laughs> and I, I, I think I think that is success. It's not success in that they made Coraline, yeah. but it's, it's success. And I think these movies should be recommended. And if you're looking for a more recent movie that follow – like not every kid – I hate – you know, I, I'm not a – don't show your kids old movies, but it's true that not not every kid is going to glom onto the witches or something wicked this way comes. But I think you could take most six to ten year olds and say we should watch this movie, and they will like it, and they will want to watch it, and maybe like Goosebumps was to me, can, that can be this building block to more and more spooky stuff. Because ultimately, the reason why we wanted to do this as a capper. And why this made sense, not just because there's so much content for Goosebumps to talk about, but because, like, this Goosebumps as a series is probably – this is a hype, uh, you know, hyperbolic statement that I can't back up. But I feel like if you're a 90s kid, there's a good chance that Goosebumps was the reason that you started to get it getting into horror movies and so like what are kid horror movies if not sometimes a gateway to the adult stuff that we talk about so much on this show yeah yeah i mean that's i mean that's absolutely true right like um i i was exposed to horror movies very young but like goosebumps was the opportunity to take it into my own hands because i had older siblings that were five seven and ten years older you could so literally like, give yourself goosebumps. I could literally give myself fucking goosebumps, bro. Um, and when you and I were building this month, we actually like had a hard time coming up with a list of even – we're usually – usually when we're building a concept, you've got like 10, 10 ideas and we chop two off because they're like a little bit out of theme and then – we remove one because, like, one of us feels like we just won't have that much to say about it. Yada yeah. yada yada. For this for this month, it was nothing but cuts because we were like, "Yeah, that's a little creepy," but like, you know, it, it's a little creepy, but like, you know, like, this is not a movie for kids. Like, this is actually, is it a, like, yeah? Or, is it a horror movie for kids? Not yeah. a comedy with horrific elements. Not like. Is it a horror movie sh- at kids? Yes. Or this movie kind of actually sucks. Like, it fits the theme. But, like, is it actually worth bringing – dragging this up out, out of the yeah. VHS era to bring up and talk about? Like, can uh, we get past the animation in Monster House to talk about how good the story is? <laughs> Stuff like that. I, yeah, I don't remember. The last time I watched Monster House is probably, like, 2012. So, um, like – yeah, I mean, Robert Zemeckis should definitely be executed for for some crimes against animation. And I think Monster <laughs> did, House is a good example. We we did almost cover Paranorman. I'd like to cover that on the show someday. Paranorman's um, great. Yeah. But um, that was the only real cut we made. There was a lot uh, on the list that both of us agreed, eh, not really worth covering. Not really that interesting. Yeah. Not really that fun. Or like something like Return to Oz that we already covered. Yeah. And so it is nice to cap this off with sort of like 
Goosebumps as a franchise transitioning and trying to find the right home for spooky stories for kids. And the interesting yeah. thing about this is you mentioned you, you can't always make kids like what you like. Yeah. Like your kids, like you got some kids that love Muppet shit and you've got some kids who like not really some other thing. Like, yeah, yeah I've been incredibly unsuccessful at getting anyone to want to watch anything Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you know, it's yeah. But then I got, you know, she watch all the Indiana Jones movies or like it's whatever they're. You have no idea what they're going to go on. Yeah, you don't. You don't. And so my point here is that like they the at the end of the month, we're actually charting what this series was trying to do as it was talking about different uh, different uh, audiences. And as someone who doesn't have a five and an eight year old or whatever that I'm trying to figure out what their their horror thresholds are. Um, I was watching it from the perspective that I think this is really kind of targeting, which is parents who are old enough now to have kids who can go watch a movie like this and have nostalgia for this particular set of characters because the series now has it is 30 years old um at the time these movies came out it was only like 25 but you know what i mean um yeah so the the series has kind of um moved on and then came back and moved on. And so this is, this is pitching to a nostalgia niche audience uh, of parents that want to share this with their kids more than it's pitching directly to the kids. Um, yeah. I'm not saying kids aren't going to find it because kids watch any kids movie that they're allowed to watch. Right. And this movie's just sitting and on, it's Netflix. on Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. But um, like I, <laughs> I, I bless you. I do find the sort of brazenness of throwing all these monsters in my face and it being specifically about like brand um, reclaiming for R.L. Stein and for Goosebumps and trying to like rejigger those old memories. I, I think that other series, even since this movie came out fucking eight years ago, other series have eaten some of that goodwill for, for me. Um, by constantly trying to mind my childhood, you know, like my childhood has been mined and mined and mined and mined. And occasionally we get like the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, the new animated one. And occasionally and then very more often than not, we get like um, some of the new Star Wars shit that's clearly just like it's aesthetic and nothing else. Um, yeah. And like this is a marketing opportunity for Scholastic. And like I find some of the brazenness in the second movie where they're like, oh, there's Goosebumps merchandise that's going to come to life. I find that brazenness actually somewhat charming and honest. But I find the brazenness of just being like, what if the books pop up and all the monsters just come out of the books? A little um, a little too much for me. Um, But it is very funny. Like these it feels like this is a movie that's pitching the concept of books to kids. Yeah. <laughs> like the, this is like a movie that's a marketing opportunity for physical books, kids going home and reading, not, not on their tablet. Yeah. I mean, like, going home reading. and it's a very funny position for a film to be in because and, and what people love about goosebumps as a series are like the stories and the ways that that made them feel. Um, but like, I also, I have some, I found when I was home, I, I just grabbed them. I grabbed my old goosebumps books. Cause I was like, Oh, I don't want these ending up going in like a landfill somewhere. These have some sort of totemic value to me. So I obviously get that, that thing. Um, and 
Uh, pitching it via movies is kind of funny and absurd to me. And just kind of like a final note. Um, it's sort of like the, the joke about like writing about music is like dancing about architecture. It's like having yeah. me <laughs> make me watch a movie about why books are these particular books are good is kind of uh, uh, in terms of medium access. Uh, very absurd. <laughs> Well, but I, it also feels less evil than other versions of this, right? Like, these movies aren't pitching to kids to... Like, their idea of merchandising isn't necessarily a go-buy slappy action figures. I'm sure they made slappy action figures, but it's more like there's a bunch of books you could buy. And, like, yeah. that is ultimately... Yeah, back in publishing. <clears throat> that, I mean, that is ultimately what my daughter did when she saw Goosebumps. The, Goosebumps was not like we're watching the movie based on the series, you know. We were watching scary movies for kids when she was five. We watched Goosebumps and she loved it. And then we bought some of the old books and we watched the TV show and that was on Netflix. And like, you know, that – I don't know. Like still a corporation and is evil. But for <laughs> degrees of evil, it feels like it's evil with potentially some good in that like – like your mom. Uh, hey, maybe you'll read this and enjoy it and want to read more. And like, you know, the Goosebumps series, I I did like – kids were obsessed with reading those. Like, I was obsessed with reading those. And then what else was scary and what else could I get obsessed with and what other series? And yeah, there's a – there's a mining that occurs from all those things because kids are very easy to get obsessed with things. And then it's very easy 20 years later to look back on the things you were obsessed with and goes, man, am I ever going to be as obsessed with a book series as I was with Goosebumps? And then someone goes, here's more Goosebumps. And you're like, hell yeah. Finally, Goosebumps for me, a 40-year-old adult who hasn't felt anything really scary since I read Stay Out of the Basement. But like – uh, it's I don't know like it's it feels like on the scale of like merchandising to kid movies it feels like it's not Pixar where for the most part uh, now I'm rethinking that because Pixar definitely merchandised the fuck out of everything they did I, I'm literally thinking of Inside Out and forgetting Toy Story exists but uh, 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 Woody, a Woody doll plays a major plot point in a season of The Office <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but like, yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah, people, the the ideal situation for kids liking this movie and getting more goosebumps is reading the books. And yeah, it's it like, again, Scholastic isn't fucking Marvel or Disney from an evil corporation. So I don't know. I think it's fine, Peter. Yeah, no, I, I, on a final thought, and this is, I really hope not too poignant for you, too thoughtful um, that will it'll you know start a whole half an hour conversation. But do you think Ken Jong ever regrets not staying a doctor? <laughs> uh, no, he really seems to like what he does. But it's a I have a note, and we didn't even get into it because like I don't want to get into like he's not in this movie for that long, and he's and he's not. He's not he seems like to, have been in it to help convince parents to go see the movie, or like maybe he had yeah a bunch they of shit they down. Called. They downgrade – it's not that they don't like the adult characters in the sequel, but like they get it really right for thankless adult roles that have a couple funny lines in the first one. And then they get it slightly worse in the, in the second one and they have less Jack Black too. Um, 
But I will say this. I cannot think of a actor who everyone fell in love with and turned on as quickly as Ken, Ken John. Because, <laughs> I mean, you know, you watch that first season of Community and you're like, this guy is hilarious. And then by the third season of Community, you're like, write him off the show and make him go back to medical school and renew <laughs> his license. And then, like, they build shows around him. He's, like, guest starring is the same thing and everything. Like... Yeah, he seems like a lovely, lovely man, and um, but yeah, people really got sick of him quickly, Peter. Yeah, I mean, he was in also a series of movies that uh, has uh, in cultural consciousness really slipped away, but made a shit ton of money, which was the Hangover movies. Um, which I think oh. mo- most people find very annoying now. I like, couldn't even remember what movie. That was his like, big break. Oh, where, I, yeah. Where people were like, like. Yeah, he was in that before Community. Because the first Hangover came out. Yeah, possibly. I think I, either, I saw all either these the same, order, Either the same year or. Yeah, those movies. But that, but that was when I started hearing bros do offensive Asian accents. Uh, was in the early Ken Jeong era, and I'm not saying this is his fault. It's um, not offensive fault. Asian accents imitating various characters of his. Um, and I, I personally was sick of Ken Jeong by like season two of Community as well. And then it's oh yeah, like no, I'm saying I'm saying under, the show did also, not know what to do with them. The show also figured out at some point they're like, not only do we not know what to do with this character, we figured out that everybody hates this character. So what do we do? Going forward. But then they kept making the problem is all uh, funny people kept leaving that show and they're like, we got more. We got to get more. Ken. He's not leaving. <laughs> so we need to put him in more stuff where like he becomes part of the study group. And uh, they did not know what to do with him after season one when he wasn't their Spanish teacher. It was. It He's was one of the reasons I have not finished Community. <laughs> I am not either. I've never watched the last season. Yeah. The The Yahoo the Yahoo season? What a bizarre world we lived in for a couple of years. God. Um, um, yeah. But yeah, that's that's Goosebumps. I it's just, a wrap. I want to I wanna wish everyone a happy Halloween. Um, hope you get your spooks. Hope you... Yeah, we're recording this before the spooks have officially started. As yeah, you the tell- spooks haven't hit my bloodstream yet, so I can't be too spooky yet. Um, can't be too spooky. Um... What's coming next? Great question. <laughs> uh, we, you might get a Spooktober recap. You might have a month that we haven't aligned on. We may be taking a, a extended break, uh, most likely, actually. So uh, we will be back. We're glad we we're able to wrap up. We did want to miss in October. November and Thanksgiving can suck it. That we don't care if we miss that and you hear some classic episodes or something. But yeah, we'll be taking a little break. And when we come back, uh, will have changed dramatically. Um, my, my name will be Peter. Peter's will be Aaron. Uh, it'll be confusing at first, but everyone will get used to it. Yeah, it's just it's just the way the cookie crumbles. This we're going through a na- it, look. But... We're going through a name replacement surgery. It's pretty common, but the recovery time is long because <laughs> we have to get used. To, you have to look at the you have to look at the mirror for a while and go like, "You talking to me?" Yeah, Air- Peter. Yeah. You got to get it right until you can go record an episode. Yeah. I, I look in the mirror and then I look at my new uh, hodgepodge photoshopped uh, version of a birth certificate that's taped in the corner of the yep. mirror. And I go, Aaron. 
Yeah, what's weird is our last names stay the same for legal purposes, but like no, it's just our first name. That actually is a more complicated surgery. Changing your last <laughs> name is just the thing is, if you change your last name, it's a court, it's a form. It does, it's you got to do passport and birth certificate, but it's pretty easy. A first name replacement surgery never been done. It, it's and it's, it's, it's in and out one. procedure. It, no, it's not. I'm saying it's going to take a long time to recover. <laughs> it's an oh yeah, the procedure is quick. It's outpatient, but. It takes a long time. Long for recovery us to period. Recover. And yeah. Yeah, so. um, I will be addicted to caffeine pills as an outcome. Yeah. It'll be unrelated to the surgery, but just thought it'd be a fun thing to kick. I think an addiction arc could be good when we come back from hiatus. Hey, we'll see. Yeah. It always spikes You're so up excited. You're 17. so scared. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> good night. Good Happy night. smoking. Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand and you want to support the show. We truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you. Uh, With kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. (laughs)